Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Wheat. I'm the Head of Higher Education Engagement at VTI, and you're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello, it's lovely to meet you. Um, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you arrived at the position that you're in now at VTI? Yes, hello, it's nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me. Um, I've been at VTI for nearly six years now. And before that, I was a postdoctoral researcher in psychology based at the uh, Maastricht University. Um, and before that, I was a PhD at the University of York. Right, okay, great. So that's a lot of experience to bring to the current role. It definitely helps having had um, some time as a researcher to understand what it's like, what the pressures are, Um, though, you know, the the world changes really quickly. So six years old experience is already quite old, Um, but I really make an effort to stay connected through research and network, through going out to conferences to kind of keep abreast of how things are now. That's great. So could you just explain to us kind of in layman's terms, um, what is the Concordat? Okay, so in full, it's the Concordat to support the career development of researchers and is commonly known as the Researcher Development Concordat. Um, And fundamentally, it's an agreement between the employers of researchers and the research funders about the expectations for professional development and the employment conditions of researchers working in the UK. Great, so can you just explain to us a little bit in terms of the role you're performing now and then um, how that's kind of um, resulted in the new Concordat? Do you mean my role at VTI, what I do in my day job? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, my position is Head of Higher Education Engagement. which essentially means I um, am responsible for VTI's membership Mm programme. So we're an organisation, a non-profit uh, programme, focusing on the professional development of researchers. Uh, One of the ways we fund ourselves is through university and other organisation memberships. So um, I have a role in that programme. And um, through our mission, um, we have a particular interest in improving the employment conditions and improving the professional development conditions for researchers internationally but we have a big focus in the UK given that's where we're based Um, so a complementary part of my role is interacting with different stakeholder groups researchers funders universities managers of researchers and they're the key groups represented in the Concordat. Brilliant so um just thinking a bit about my experience previously I've worked as a head of department I've had researchers in my department and there are some really unique challenges I think aren't there to researchers um, so can you just talk to us a little bit about how what you think those challenges are and how you think um, the Concordat has worked to support or, or alleviate some of those challenges one of the uh, biggest um, persistent challenges for researchers is um, insecurity of employment. Mm -hmm. Most researchers, the vast majority in the UK, are working on a series of fixed term contracts. Those contracts can be as short as six months or shorter. 
Um, uh, but, you know, the even contracts of what you might call a meaningful length might only be two years or three years, maybe five years. Um, so um, that's one of the challenges um, which, uh, as a sector, by which I mean the funders, the universities and so on, operating in higher education and the academic uh, arena, as a sector, we've agreed that's one of the common challenges that we really have to do better on. We've made some progress, we being the sector. Year on year, the proportion of fixed term contracts is going down, but it's really, you know, percentage points at a time, not a tipping point to say, mm. you know, actually the majority are now on continuing stable positions yeah so just in your conversations with researchers why is that such a big challenge to them these fixed term contracts what are they actually Mm -hmm. saying to you in terms of oh you know i can't do this any longer what what are the key things that are challenging them in in that respect I mean, there are so many challenges wrapped up in um, this kind of instability of employment. Um, Partly in the research itself, you know, it's difficult to sustain momentum, to um, build a publishing track record. Takes a lot of time to keep on applying for jobs and to keep on applying for grants. So just for the health of the research base and the quality of the research, a certain element of stability Um, is valuable and then on the personal side um, of course if if you're having a series of short-term contracts and that probably interacts with a time where you might be thinking about settling down starting a family um, maybe buying a house you know building some links into a community if through through no choice of your own um, you're moving uh, continually cities to try and chase the next contract it, it doesn't really give you roots in the community or even roots in the university um, but having said all of that there is real value to mobility so one of the things that I think is really important is it's not just about getting rid of fixed term contracts it's about having a healthier way to support mobility and that might be mobility across sectors might be mobility through different positions within the same institution um, it might be mobility of discipline um, but all of it done in a way that gives the individual researcher a lot more uh, autonomy and a lot more agency control over how frequently they move and where they move to I think that's the crux of it it's not just whether your contract is fixed term or open it's do you have the freedom of your own movement brilliant and then just in terms of that one challenge that, that we focused on there, mm-hmm. how seriously do you think institutions will take the concordat in terms of kind of the directives or the suggestions that have been made? I think institutions will take it really seriously. All of the um, obligations that they have uh, within the concordat uh, now, as opposed to the previous iteration, any institution that wants to take part can do so by being a signatory. And uh, signatories are all at the organisational level, 
So, for example, University of Liverpool's Vice-Chancellor would sign on behalf of all of the members of, of the university and that then cascades a certain set of obligations and expectations. So the university has to produce an action plan and they have to report on that action plan internally every year and make that report public. So it gives a certain amount of transparency and accountability to say that even if an institution isn't making progress, they should at least have actions that support future progress. And if they don't have any actions, then researchers have a mechanism to say, you've signed this, why aren't you doing something? Brilliant. Yeah, so there's that challenge then. So they can therefore challenge the institution based on the action plan. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So one thing that particularly stands out from the new Concordat is the interlinked responsibilities of funders, uh, research institutions and researchers in relation to researchers' rights and needs. Do you think that's the key development? Yes, I think it's absolutely one of the key changes this time. Um, In the previous iteration, it was, I would say, partly a partnership expectation between the universities and the researchers. Mm. Both those groups had clear uh, expectations set out. But now it goes even further to say the funders have their own set of expectations and the managers of researchers have their own set too. So each of the different organisation types and groups of individuals working together in sometimes interlinked responsibilities and sometimes their own unique responsibilities should mean that everybody's actions are complementing the way forward. Everybody's pulling together in a, a direction that, you know, as a concordat, we've collectively agreed this is the direction that we want to go in. So it gives a clear kind of roadmap for everyone to say, all of my actions and all of the actions of the members of my institution through their contracts or through their grant funding conditions, everything pushes together in the same direction. So just thinking about um, something that really stood out to me in terms of the Concordat is a real focus on the mental health and the well-being of the researchers, which um, may be quite unique in terms of this iteration of, of the Concordat. And I just wondered if you wanted to reflect on that a bit. You've already spoken about insecure employment and, and the effect that that can have. Um, but do you think that this is like a really key development um, in terms of thinking about the well-being of the researchers and trying to protect that? Yes, I do think it's a really important and new element of the Concordat. Um, You mentioned there whether it's unique and I think it's important to note that it's not unique to the Concordat, that there's a growing uh, concern and awareness of some of the challenges sector-wide across universities, through the whole university system um, and beyond that we uh, as employers, as as all of the members of the research system, need to take care of our own well-being and mental health, and we need to take care of the well-being and mental health, particularly of people working uh, underneath us as employees or as students, but for everybody, for our peers. And I think that's a really positive development in this Concordat, is that focus on the culture and the environment as a whole. That's something that, um, you know, it's it's very 
it's very current. Many different organisations are trying to make improvements in this area. Um, and the Concordat is one piece of the puzzle um, in making sure that all of us working in the research environment, researchers, academic staff, um, everybody who's playing a part um, benefits from an improved culture and improved opportunities to protect their well-being and mental health. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's obviously something that's being talked about a lot within the sector. If I reflect back on my work, even with undergraduates, um, there, there's a lot of talk now about appropriately um, supporting students. I'm just, I'm a bit scared that it's it just becomes rhetoric. We know we're supposed to say this, but but what actual actions can be put in place to ensure um, there, there, there is the appropriate amount of support um, in terms of people's, or in this case, researchers' well-being? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's so important that those words on the page are mm. more than just words. They really have to come to life in the, in the way that institutions operate. Um, and that can take many forms. Um, some of the suggestions within the Concordat itself are, for example, looking at workload management, um, giving um, you know, managers of people the skills to manage mm. those people, the time to develop those skills, um, and building into, for example, appraisals, the opportunity to value and recognise those kinds of skills. Um, so that everybody who um, is responsible for people feels supported in um, that role um, and feels valued for that role. Brilliant, thank you. It sounds like the Concordat is really trying to change the culture, um, and in particular in culture in higher education institutions. Um, in fact, the section on, on the environment and culture in the Concordat places the employer-employee responsibilities side by side. So would you say that the new Concordat means, well, what would you say the new Concordat means for a higher education institution? So many things. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, any particular higher education institution has to make the decision at the very top of their organisation, are they going to sign or not? And that already gives a certain message to the sector and to their employees, you know, we've signed this. And now we'll be, uh, you know, making steps towards implementing it. So, um, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Just because an organization signs doesn't mean that they'll, you know, be implementing. Yeah, yeah, huge change the, straight away. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's all about continued progress. Um, and so I think that's ultimately what it means for an organization is taking some time to reflect on how could this look for the best in our organisation, how are we going to make everybody aware that they also, by virtue of us signing, have some responsibilities and expectations, and how are we going to support all of the members of our institution to play their part. Um, because including the researchers then? Including the researchers, yeah. yeah. It's not just something that's done for them or to them. No, absolutely. And um, the UK Research Staff Association is one of the members of the Concordat Strategy Group, which is the group that, on behalf of the um, sector, manage and oversee the implementation. So researchers have a voice there. And uh, in this new version, all signatories 
uh, are expected to incorporate the researcher voice into their implementation plan. So as well as raising awareness, they should really be gathering the views and involving researchers in the, sh- in the shape of the implementation. It's very much collective action rather than any one group doing something to another group. Yeah, thank you. Great, okay. Um, as a developer, I was really interested to read the section in the Concordat um, talking about the recommendation for 10 days um, pro rata per year for professional development. That was really interesting to me. Um, so what impact do you foresee um, that having in terms of um, maybe, I think what I'm picking up from you is getting away from this, what can we get from researchers? You know, how can we um, take from them, but actually how can we have that balance view? How can we support them um, in terms of what we were talking about with their mental health, their well-being, um, giving them stable contracts, but also in terms of this kind of CPD element. Um, can you explore that a little bit for us as to why that's there mm-hmm. and, and how you feel that that's going to support the researchers? Um, yes, so I think it's really interesting the way that you phrase it, this idea that we're not just taking from researchers, but we're giving to them as well. Um, and just kind of reflecting back on the idea of the fixed term contract. In some instances, a fixed term contract or, you know, a short period of employment as a postdoc can be really beneficial. Of course, yeah. It can be a learning opportunity. It can be an opportunity to test out whether an academic career is for you or not, mm. or just an opportunity to further your own curiosity is something you've started in your PhD and you're not quite done with it yet and you're not quite sure where to go next, even though you don't aspire to long-term be a PI. So I think for me, what would be really positive is if we get to a place, you know, before the life of this current Concordat ends, where all of that exploration and development and the moving between sectors and between different types of jobs within a university is valued and is visible and is important. And I think the 10 days is a really important step towards giving researchers um, permission and opportunities to be explorative, to... um, yeah, test, you know, use a postdoc as a testing out. And if it's not something for you, use it as a springboard to something that's a much better fit. Because, you know, an academic career is not for everybody. And that's a really good thing. Um, But if lots of people get a chance to kind of pass through it, hopefully, with all of the improvements in kind of making the right environment, making the right employment conditions, so that those people most suited can stay if they want to stay um, and giving this lots of tasters of other things everybody finds their best fit and that's you know better for research and better for the individual absolutely it's that kind of holistic picture isn't it so when you say they're testing out different things what are those different things what what could they be what does that look like well, there are no hard and fast rules no. yet on what the 10 days might look like, but um, it really could span such a range of things. It could be, um, you know, doing some teaching mm-hmm. or doing some committee work um, or, you know, doing some supervision, you know, kind of academic training, if you like. Um, it could be, um, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, 10 days spread out make them all into a block and do a two-week placement somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little bit, you know, 
use your imagination and think about different arenas, different kinds of skills, um, different experiences, and alongside that, taking the opportunity to reflect on those skills that you're developing, even if all of the work you do is you know teaching and committee work and marking and so on, that skills that you develop there will be easily transportable to other kinds of jobs you know in the public sector in the private sector and charities every organization needs innovative people with leadership skills who are you know creative and critical thinkers so yeah, I mean, researchers are imaginative people, Absolutely. so I, yeah. look, I look forward to seeing what people use the 10 days for. <laughs> yeah, okay. great, thank you. So do I. That's, that's interesting, though. Um, it aligns to some of, the, um, some of the conversations we're having here around technicians and allowing technicians to have sort of protected development days regardless of uh, contract or, or contract length. So some yeah some of those conversations we're we're having around uh, development we're, we're trying to say it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a course by you know X Y Z it could be a short term skill swap in terms of you know a week's comment into this lab where you'll learn this piece of machinery etc etc some of the skills you can then take back some reciprocal arrangements happening hopefully with um, friendly PIs etc I think those are the those are things that we're talking about so there's some synergies there isn't there with the technicians commitments. Do you want to elaborate on those synergies at all? Yeah, there are synergies. And um, one of the kind of processes that the, uh, the, the Concord app went through, you know, there was a lot of drafting and a lot of different mm. um, kind of uh, input through reviews and through, con- through consultations. Um, and it's come to a point where really the core definition of the Concord app is about research staff, as in... Uh, individuals who are primarily employed to conduct research but the definition um, allows for flexibility by a university or research institute to bring in as many different kinds of people into that definition as as they want to so any institution can essentially make its own definition as long as it includes research staff it can be research staff plus PhDs if they wanted to, plus technicians, plus teaching fellows. So there's many other groups who might benefit from the Concordat, either formally or informally, just because, you know, the practice of professional development starts to be better embedded. Yeah. And that comes back to that culture piece. It's around changing the culture of of that work and of of the institution, essentially. So... Just on while while we're on that, um, can you? And I don't want to try and you know sort of force you to speak for your employer or anything like that. But what are you, what what do you think Vitae's aspirations for the manner in which the Concordat will be embedded within institutional culture? Um, yeah, that's a tricky one. Having not <laughs> consulted with the rest of Vitae, <laughs> um, but I think um, at the very least. Um, we hope and expect that universities will sign up. Yeah. I think that's the first important step. Have you got a sense of um, whether universities are going to... Have you had any feedback from the sector in terms of... I mean, even out on social media, there's a lot of excitement around it. Mm. But... Oh, yes. I mean, even before it was um, published, you know, we... Um, our role at VTI is providing secretariat support to the Concordat Strategy Group. 
Um, so, you know, we performed some uh, administration and so on. And even before the Concordat was published, we were getting, uh, you know, inundated right. with requests of, you know, when is it coming? When can we figure out what we need to do to uh, to meet it? Mm. Um, so, so far, there are um, 15 signatories who are primarily uh, funders because they form the main group of the Concordat strategy group. Um, but yeah, we expect over the next coming months, universities will be um, will be starting to kind of digest what it means to be a signatory. Yeah. Um, you know what's contained within the new document, and start thinking about how they can possibly implement it. Um, and signing, obviously, being the the starting point of that. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks, Katie. Well, this has been really, really interesting. So thank you for your time. What The way we try and end the um, podcast is by giving our listeners um, a couple of hints or tips just to take away to kind of reflect on their own personal practice. So I was just wondering if you had a couple of kind of tips for research staff, kind of standouts from the Concordat that they could go away and reflect on, and maybe a couple of kind of hints or tips for managers of research staff, again, for them to reflect on. Um, so kind of the things that hit you in terms of the Concordat that you'd like to leave people with. Um, for research staff, I hope that one thing that they'll notice and take away is that this isn't a long and difficult document to read. A lot of effort has gone into making it concise, making it logically structured, hopefully making it relevant to people, um, because it's so important that all of the stakeholders are aware of what it contains, but most importantly, researchers themselves. They're the ultimate beneficiaries, and there is a certain responsibility on them to make their voice heard and to hold the institutions and the funders to account. Um, But more importantly, I suppose I'd like researchers to take notice of what's going on beyond the pages of the document. So through um, representation, through um, the monitoring and governance through their institutions, there will be um, opportunities for researchers to participate to uh, you know take a place on a committee to respond to a survey to just you know go on the organization website and view their action plan um, so if we're going to make progress researchers do need to shoulder their part of the responsibility and pay attention and engage with these opportunities brilliant and then in terms of managers what are your kind of take-home messages for them So for managers, I think the Concordat recognises that managers can have a strong influence and this can be for better or for worse on the experiences of their individual researchers. So again, I think encouraging managers to be familiar with the expectations is ultimately important, but then taking some time to reflect on how they can use this as a springboard to positively influence the culture around them, I think we'll all win if if that happens brilliant great thank you for your time katie thanks for coming in thank you very thank much you. For me. thank you
Well, it was lovely meeting Katie and hearing about the new Concordat. It seems that it's started to address some of the key discussions and challenges that have been raised within the sector um, for a number of years now. I particularly liked um, what she was talking about in terms of how the Concordat is trying to address um, the um, mental health, the well-being of our researchers, thinking about the impact that these insecure contracts can have and trying to address some of that. For me, that's really, really important. Yeah, and, and one of the challenges that I picked up on and things, one of the things that has been addressed is that development time. So now, obviously, there's that statement in the Concord that, that says de- researchers will have 10 days professional development priority, which is which is a really important thing and it's something that aligns like I said in the, in the conversation it really does align with the work that the technicians do and it's something that a lot of universities are grappling with at the moment how do we give that development time um, to these important groups that are, that are achieving so much um, so yeah it, it was great to hear that, that, that that's one of the recommendations in there there's obviously lots for us to reflect on there in terms of an institution at institutional level um, also for managers Uh, for researchers themselves, for academics. If you want to think a little bit further about this, we've added some additional resources onto our website. So if you go to www.liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy, on there there'll be a link to the podcast and some additional resources that you may want to check out to further your reflections. Let us know what you thought about our conversation with Katie today. You can tweet us at Live Uni Academy and feed back to us um, some of your thoughts about this interesting topic. Yeah, and if you can uh, please rate, review and subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your, your podcasts from, that would be really helpful. Thanks very much. Yeah.